Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of China news in just a few minutes a day with a handy smartphone app, an email newsletter, and, of course, by visiting SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today it's the second half of our conversation with John Pomfret, veteran China journalist and author of the brand new book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom. In the first half, John talked about the early commercial encounters between China and the United States described in his book, and talked about how trade with China by the newly independent United States really shaped the U.S. in significant ways. He also introduced us to just a few of the many, many fascinating characters who come to life in the pages of the book. Now, we plunge ahead into the 20th century and even into the complexities of the relationship in the 21st century. Jeremy Goldhorn joined us from Nashville, Tennessee, and we pick up now where we left off. Uh, this is a history, though, that's written very much with the present and the future in mind. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I'm throughout the book, you point to what, what I've been calling historical rhymes, where events you describe presage or, or even foreshadow things that will happen later, kind of like musical motifs in an overture. For example, you say, some advocated pushing for transformation of China, others fought to keep China whole. This remains an ongoing debate. Elsewhere, you talk about how Americans had already developed a conviction that they knew Chinese interests better than the Chinese did. I think it was when you were actually uh, talking about Anson de Berlingate. Right. You've said things like, and for the next four decades, like a bad gene in the DNA of the Chinese psyche, China's pro-American propensities would resurface again and again, tormenting the Chinese Communist Party. So there's a plot that I see repeating. If I, if I may offer a summary and tell me if I've got this right. Basically, you have this deep-rooted love that makes them take everything so damn personally. Expectations are set unrealistically high. Right. Hopes are inevitably dashed. And then disappointment sets in. The book is written with with the present in mind and and the future in mind as well. But I'm not clairvoyant, which is which is too bad. But I'm just not, and neither are any of else else of us. But do the disappointed parties act differently? For example, when it's China that is disappointed, does it behave differently than say when the United States is the one that's disappointed? Well, I mean, both sides have a tendency of throwing hissy fits. The question is, how do they manifest? I mean, when America when America falls into despair, generally we we have a tendency to take relatively aggressive action, or we make statements that we're going to get tough. Uh, if you look at sort of the Clinton administration, or you know, following following the Tiananmen crackdown, it's like, okay, look, we're going to make human rights a major part of our policy, and we're going to get tough on China. And then uh, reality sets in, and that you just need China too much to for other things. Then China can cause a lot of tr- trouble for you if you actually right. get really uh, sideways with China. So that has a tendency to break the U.S. impulses to be tough on China. But because generally speaking, people 
don't want to escalate the relationship, and at least in the past, they have not wanted to escalate the downside of the relationship too too much for fear that other parts of the relationship where China is really needed are are, are going to fall off the rails. John, that I think brings me to a question I wanted to ask, which um, reading the book one gets the sense that China and the US seem to be eternal frenemies in Stephen Colbert's memorable phrase. Um, There's a mutual fascination, which sometimes blooms into love. And on the other hand, sometimes it just seems that East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet, if I may quote my favorite imperialist poet, Rudyard Kipling. Um, so after writing this book, six years of work, over 600 pages, what are the big lessons? I mean, how does your review of almost 250 years of the relationship prepare us for what we face today uh, in the relationship between the U.S. and China? I think that uh, from the American perspective, the United States often has not really known what it wants from China. And it has had a tendency to pursue its interests with China in a somewhat gauzy uh, perspective that as long as we engage with China, the power of our personality and our system is going to be such that the Chinese are going to just take it all on. And that has had a tendency in some ways to to muddle the, the, the necessity to know what you want with China. And on the Chinese side, I think as well, in some cases, they have... What they want from the United States is they want trade, they want technology, and they also they often think that they can get that without, as the New York Times said in 1881, importing the virus of political rebellion. But they then often find, oops, that's actually impossible. And so these both sides have had real difficulty first figuring out what they want from the other and then getting it without getting kind of the negative stuff whether from the U.S. perspective or the Chinese perspective. And I think that the Americans have real trouble with China when their expectations... I think both sides have real trouble with with each other when their expectations are high. Exactly. What this book is a plea for, actually, is a lowering of expectations. The problem with that, though, is that the relationship has been so emotional... Because you have a country which thinks of itself as the apex of the West facing a country that thinks of itself as the apex of the East. And in that dance, you know, people talk about the Chinese having lots of self-regard. I mean, think of Christ. I mean, the Americans, I mean, you know, you, American exceptionalism. We've, we have no lack of self-regard, right? So you have- I've noticed. Very, <laughs> right. You have two countries who think they're the, they're the greatest thing since sliced bread trying to deal with each other. Uh, with huge amounts of mutual attraction and a lot of emotion. So it makes it very difficult to actually lower the expectations. But I think that's actually a ticket to a more stable relationship. Very good. Now, so central to the American discourse about China is the old debate. It really dates back to the early Cold War of who lost China. I mean, it still colors so much of the way that China policy is talked about today. And, you know, you give the issue pretty thorough treatment in your book. You also suggest when you talk about the disappointment of the young intellectuals of the early Republican period, that if the U.S. ever lost China, not that it was the U.S. is to lose, that it happened in 1919 and maybe not say in 1946. For maybe those of our listeners who might not be familiar with the betrayal of China by Wilson at Versailles, tell, tell us what happened. Why were Chinese so deeply disillusioned with the U.S. and with American liberalism and how did this kind of clear the path to uh, authoritarianisms of the left and the right. The Chinese entered World War I 
because of the United States. Americans convinced them to get involved, specifically our ambassador at the time, Paul Reinch, who was working for Woodrow Wilson. And when Wilson made his 14-point speech, uh, the Chinese across China were just like, this is what we want. You know, we want an end to imperialism, an end to secret treaties. You know, everyone, all nations equal. This is the holy grail that we've been seeking. And Chinese wrote about the- Even Mao. Mao, Mao was, was gushing. Even. Yeah, down there in Hunan in his bookstore, he was like, this is thumbs up. Chen Duxiu, the founder of the Chinese Communist Party, said basically Wilson is the number one guy in the world. Uh, and so the Chinese expectation going into the Versailles Peace Conference was that uh, the imperialism, the carving up of China, the spheres of influence, all this kind of stuff that was really bedeviling their country was going to end. And, and specifically, they believed that the Japanese occupation of Shandong province was going to end. And the Japanese had, as part of their contribution to the war on the Allies' side, because uh, the Japanese were fighting on the Allied side during the war, on the side of the U.S. and the Brits and the French, the Japanese had taken over the German colony in Shandong. And so when the Versailles Peace Conference starts, the Chinese are, we're going to get Shandong back. And Wilson, in his discussions with Wellington Ku, a Gu Weijun, who was the Chinese ambassador to the United States at the time, and a, a Columbia graduate, an incredibly brilliant diplomat. Wilson basically said, we're on your side, right. and we're very happy you're going to be going to Versailles too. And Wilson, in the first time an American president had ever, ever left the United States, goes to Versailles to negotiate the treaty. And Gu Weijun, Wellington Ku goes well, and Wellington Ku gives this incredibly impassioned speech, saying the 14 points is our lodestar. And this is what we want to see, and you know we and we want we want Wilson, uh, and and we love this guy, and we want Shandong back. And in secret dealings and in backdoor uh, rooms uh, on this treaty, basically the Brits and the French and the Americans are pushed in because of the basically because the Japanese had actually cut a deal beforehand with both the Brits and the French on this, the Americans basically consent to the fact that Shandong will not go back to the Chinese and Shandong will stay under Japanese control. And it's exposed during the treaty that the Japanese had already paid off one Chinese warlord to get him to agree to let Japan keep Shandong province. And at this point, uh, a huge percentage of actually the U.S. delegation feels like basically that the United States had just stabbed China in the back. And the Chinese agreed. And the demonstrations that had been held in Tiananmen Square at the end of the war, uh, which were all pro-American, flip and turn anti-American. And the Chinese are just livid at being what they believe to be significantly sold out by the United States. And at that point, it kicks off in these demonstrations that happen on May 4th, 1919 uh, against the Versailles Treaty and against the American, what they believe would be abandonment of China, touch off this incredible intellectual movement in China to study all sorts of uh, political systems as, as, a, as an alternative to the, the republic that they've, that they've, they've founded you know, in 1911. That's right. When we have to remember that these are not uh, boxers, these are not you know uh, knee-jerk xenophobes in China. These are the cream of Chinese society. These are the intellectuals, disillusioned liberals. Right? Yeah, the cream of China. Exactly. The, and, and at that point, then the Russians, who were already had already had their communist revolution, they relinquish on paper 
all of their privileges in China as a way to, to curry favor with the Chinese intel, intelligentsia. And at that point, the Chinese intel, intelligentsia makes this significant shift, whereas previously to that, they'd been by and large, very pro-American and pro-Western, they, they, they shift then and increasingly you see the Russian influence, the Soviet influence in China, China on the rise. And so that's the moment that I, I think that, that if you're looking at when, you know, China, when the United States sold China down the river, that's, that's the moment that it happened. Now, Wilson did it for his own reasons, but the, but the, but the result of that was a significant move away uh, from, from U.S. values and, and, and U.S. ideas. John, you take some positions, uh, well, I think you're taking these positions in the book that I think are quite controversial. And one in particular that sticks out is, I think you're arguing that a, a partition of China may have actually been better for the country after the Second World War. And more than once in the book, you do take issue with the way Americans have generally accepted the notion that China should be unified. Um, I know uh, a certain person I happen to be married to uh, shares this belief, but what led you, what led you to, to this belief? And how do you imagine this would have been a better outcome? Well, in terms of like whether it would have been better, I, I, I talk about it as something that, that was never, never really seriously discussed. Uh, and that was an option... Uh, that was that was pushed by a certain number of people at the near the end of the Second World War, um, and I don't really I don't think I actually said it would have been better um, because who 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 can tell, but it I think that one of the things that stopped Americans at the time from thinking about it was this very strong idea we had that uh, a united China was the only thing that could possibly be in the interest of the United States. And, and I think that that's, for me, it, the most interesting thing. What would have happened if it would have been divided in two? I think it's just that sort of historical, um, you know, crystal ball gazing or, or rewriting of history. And I, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't, I can't, I can't tell you whether it would have been better or worse. I just think the fact that it was not pursued had a lot to do with the with the belief that China needed to be united, that was stuck in the minds of the United States. And it's something that I quote John Dulles as saying, you know, basically, we spent all this time backing the idea of a united China, and the, actually the only ones who have benefited from this idea turned out to be the communists, which was, was, which was true. Fair enough. <laughs> So you challenged the received narrative on a few historical events in other places as well. Um, a couple of these, maybe we can talk about what you saw as the problem with the conventional wisdom on it. Uh, one is, you know, it's a familiar debate now. It's been challenged elsewhere. Uh, you might think of it as sort of Rana Mitter versus Barbara Tuckman or uh, General Albert Wiedemeyer versus Joseph Stilwell. You have this, you know, idea that I think it's still it's still pretty common that John Kaishak was fundamentally corrupt, that he didn't prosecute the war against Japan effectively, that he kind of deserved to lose. And you you seem to well, you very strongly take the side that uh, Wiedemeyer takes, the side that uh, Rana Mitter takes. Yeah, I, I think that both. I mean, I think that there were problem huge problems in the way the KMT prosecuted the war, but I think that the United States for uh, uh, very rational reasons, actually, made decisions on China that made it very difficult for China to fight. So 
Um, an example would be uh, the, the, the Lend-Lease equipment. When Roosevelt made his speech in 1940, China and the, and, and the UK were the two countries that he told the American public he wanted to support. But at the end of the day, the Brits got about 65% of Lend-Lease equipment. The Chinese got 3%. The Russians got, right, right. The Russians got 25%. So... But there was we a, didn't we, exactly come through, right? I mean, we didn't yeah, exactly we, come we, through. Yeah, and a lot and in a lot of areas we didn't come through. When we promised China two hundred million dollars in gold to to send to Chongqing to actually bring down inflation, we actually only gave them about twenty million of that two hundred two hundred million dollars in gold. Um, and so on a, on a broad front, and and the reasons we did that, they, they made sense at the time. I mean, Marshall George Marshall, the, the chief of staff of the army, was pursuing a war. And wanted to, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in an area where he had limited resources. And once the U.S. Navy began to win in the Pacific, it made no sense for us to fight in China, except that FDR was obsessed with this idea of, of making China strong after the war. So he forced his planners to put to, to focus on using resources to fight in China, and so. They started this project called the Matterhorn Project, which would be right. using these long-haul bombers that would be based in Chengdu, of all places, to bomb Japan. And this idea that China and, – and, and again, it was not fighting the Japanese in China. No, they didn't want to do that, but they wanted to fight the Japanese from China. And what, what that ha- when, when that happened, a huge amount of the already very limited resources that were beginning to the, be, be, being given to the Chinese were diverted away from the Flying Tigers and from the Chinese National Army into creating this Matterhorn project, which ended up being an absolute from from absolute disaster. Um, their yeah, first yeah. bombing raid, they didn't hit anything. Japan. And then and then uh, for for many many months, Washington banned the Matterhorn bombers from being used to bomb the Japanese troops in China. At a period of time when the Japanese were just they were on the, they had the Ichigo offensive and they were just roaring through southeastern China and taking another vast swath of the territory. And on their backs, of course, the communists were infiltrating their agents into that into the countryside. And another right. example uh, would be Yalta, which was the 1945, you know, incredibly important meeting. Uh, basically, you know, between Stalin and FDR, their last meeting uh, 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 that that led to sort of the beginning of the dividing of the world. And China figured in there as well. And it was incredibly important for FDR because both Marshall and MacArthur demanded it. Uh, you know, his his generals demanded it to get the Soviets into the Pacific War, right? Because we didn't know whether the Manhattan Project was going to succeed. And so, right. and the U.S. planners were thinking about an invasion of the Japanese islands. They thought minimum, minimum American casualties would be 350,000 to 500,000 dead, more dead Americans. And so to get the Russians into the, the, the Pacific, Pacific uh, combat was, was considered a key element. So in the meeting, FDR agrees with Stalin that if Stalin goes into Manchuria to fight the Japanese Kwantung army in Manchuria, that Stalin would be able to get all of the perquisites that the Tsarist Empire had had in Manchuria. So control of the railroad, a, 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 a warm water port in Dalian, 
control of the industry, basically all the imperialist perquisites that the czars had given up, and actually the earlier Leninist government had given up, would be given back to Stalin if he went into Manchuria. And so at that point, basically around the same time that we dropped the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, the Russians sent a million troops into into Manchuria. Yeah, just a couple of days later, right? Just a couple of days later, exactly. And so, so while this decision was made clearly right? Similar to, you know, the decision not to give China so many resources with this idea that we were, we had to win the war uh, and it was a way to save American lives. The ramifications of the occupation of Manchuria by a million Soviet troops were such that the communists, the Chinese communists basically just came into Manchuria. All, most of the weaponry that was taken from the Japanese military then were then handed over to the communists and it created this amazing safe area for the communist forces from which they could then launch their battle to take over China. Um, Lots yeah. of other other uh, interesting challenges that you have to the conventional narrative that will uh, allow our readers to, our listeners to, to read about in your book. So let's go back to, yeah, let's go back to a uh, talk of filthy lucre. The desire to make money in China has, uh, as we've already mentioned, been a major motif in the relationship going right back to the very beginning. And your book talks uh, quite a bit about people trying trying their luck in China, from uh, John Perkins Cushing, who you wrote retired to Boston, a multimillionaire after 27 years in Guangzhou, um, to Jack Pukowski, the businessman whose spectacular failure was recounted in Tim Clissold's book, Mr. China, but who seems to have had a successful second act. Uh, one particular story I'd like to ask you to recount is about BAT, not uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, but the British American Tobacco Company and its uh, cigarette shenanigans, their rather unorthodox tactics in their fight against Nanyang, uh, a local rival. So BAT was, in the beginning, it's now a very British company, but in the beginning it was a very American company. And it was put mm-hmm. in, it was based in London by 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 James Duke because he wanted to avoid uh, U.S. Um, anti-monopolistic uh, uh, legislation. And the hypocritical story goes that uh, James Duke, who was a tobacco baron from, from North Carolina, basically was leafing through an atlas and he sees a page that says China population 400 million. He says, well, that's where we're going to sell tobacco. (laughs) And he started. And by the late uh, 1890s, he had his men, uh, and most of them are actually um, tobacco farmers or the sons of tobacco farmers from North Carolina in China selling American tobacco. And it explodes. And he he comes into China at a time when uh, opium use, again, partially because of U.S. missionary influence, is is declining in China. And so the salesmen for BAT were heading off into the backwater Chinese towns and hawking American tobacco, American cigarettes as a replacement for opium. And it caught on and, and it caught on big time. So much so that the Chinese by the 1910s, 1920s were consuming about four-fifths the amount of cigarettes they were in the United States. And whereas in America... Uh, everything was mechanized. In China, all the cigarettes were hand-rolled by tens of thousands of Chinese women laborers. And the BAT, being a Western company, uh, had Chinese competitors. And as Chinese nationalism grew, 
a lot of Chinese com- com- companies began to compete against uh, Western companies by saying, look, you got to buy Chinese. It's the, na- it's, it's the patriotic thing to do. And one of these companies was a company called Nayang, which was a company that was uh, basically started by overseas Chinese, based initially in Hong, Hong Kong, and then moved to, moved to Guangzhou. And they uh, sold uh, cigarettes as well. And they, they basically were the only serious competitor for BAT for many years. And BAT began to do a variety of relatively creative market techniques to get, get at them. And they would do things like buy massive, massive amounts of Nanyang cigarettes, stick them in a warehouse, throw water on them, have them rot, and then release them for free into the market <laughs> in order to do a little brand damage. They, um, and, uh, Nanyang wanted to, to uh, open up a cigarette manufacturing center in Shanghai. And when BAT caught wind of that, BAT basically bought the building out from under them. They took uh, Nanyang to court in Hong Kong on numerous occasions over copyright infringement. Basically, because the Americans could afford expensive lawyers, they basically thought they could bankrupt Nanyang in that manner. But Nanyang basically, you know, stayed on. But Nanyang brothers were run by uh, three brothers, actually. And one of the brothers basically came to the conclusion that ultimately these Americans are going to beat us. So let's sell our company to them, keep the brand make Chinese people think actually it's patriotic to smoke Nanyang cigarettes, but actually it'll be secretly owned mostly by BAT. His other brothers didn't believe that. They thought that was a horrible thing to do. It's just a not, a, not a patriotic thing to do. So they fought him, and he actually, the first brother, actually died young. So that, that there, thereby ended that idea. But the questionable business practices pushed by the Americans we're in a way sort of a model for how Chinese businesses want to Exactly. We just need to remind these Americans who are whining now that it's just the shoe on the other foot. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, this kind of stuff is, is you know, we're, we're, we're all part of one big relationship here. And there was a lot of studying that went on on both sides, basically. And so um, what goes around comes around, as they say in New Absolutely. York City. So, John, you don't really talk too much about one period that I really zoom in on as very, very significant. I'm, I'm talking about the seven or eight years between September 11th and roughly, say, the 2008 Tibet uprising. So you mentioned mm-hmm. you know, that period, the, the aughts, as a period of very good relations between China and the U.S. I mean, you quote someone, I think it was Colin Powell, saying that the relationship had never really right. been better. And I, w- I would definitely agree. I mean, after September 11th, you know, you had... W wanting to enroll China in the global war on terror, yet the WTO accession, the honeymoon period from that. There's, you know, like nothing that really roiled the waters. You had, the, you know, the poison pet food stuff. You had some um, WTO cases about, like, underwire bra dumping or something. Uh, but basically, the U.S. laid off of China. And there was a lot of breathlessness. Sure, you had, you know, Joshua Cooper Ramo, you quote in there uh, with this whole Beijing consensus stuff. But, you know, we all lived in that in Beijing during that whole time. Jeremy, you did, too. And, you know. I, I can't help but look back at that period now and, and see, especially by contrast to what's come after 2008, that those years saw a pretty significant advancement in you know all these things that I care about, that we care about, I dare say, like you know, civil liberties and media freedom. The golden age of liberalism under Hu Jintao, I think we've called it before. That's right. Public sphere, NGO growth. That's a, I mean, that's a really interesting point and actually – kind of goes into the general thesis of the book that uh, when expectations are lower, things generally uh, have a tendency that they you know, could, could potentially be more stable. Um, but but that having said that, things weren't, I mean, the United States didn't really back off of China because it, 
it wanted to. It backed off of China because uh, George W. Bush was pretty much focused on the Middle East. And as a result, it needed China to do a lot of things. And it just didn't really have the wherewithal to to focus on, on China at the time. And also, all of our allies in Asia were up in arms about the fact that we were not focusing on China at the time. Japan, Korea, Australia in particular, and Vietnam also, uh, to the extent that it could, tried to put a lot of pressure on the United States not to disengage in Asia because they felt that that China was rising too quickly and the United States was not serving as an important uh, counterbalance to China. And so while I understand the point that when America kind of backed off of China, China relaxed, on the other hand, one of the reasons why the pivot happened was not simply the the mental sort of perambulations of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. It was also because the countries around Asia wanted the United States to do something like that because they felt that uh, without America in the Pacific, uh, China would would turn into uh, a regional bully. And so it wasn't simply that the United States kind of got to, came to Jesus on this issue. It's also because of a lot of conversation. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that the reason was because they understood that this was. Yeah, but 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 I take your. And I mean, it's pretty clear that that just you know on the eve of September 11th, if you look at how things had gotten, I mean, what with 95, 96 Taiwan Straits crisis, and then the embassy bombing, and then the EP3 spy plane incident. I mean, obviously, uh, things were not in, on a good trajectory prior to September 11th. Right. No, that, but, I, but I do take your, take your broader point that, I mean, which actually kind of dovetails with my idea that if our expectations are a lot lower, then the potential for a more stable relationship is higher. Yeah. Um, so somewhat related to that, I mean, you do a pretty thorough job cataloging all of the outrages uh, in what I've been calling the, the new truculence. Uh, but you don't really offer much by by explanation of of why Beijing has taken this very negative turn. I mean, you talk about rising paranoia since 2008-2009 and how that's really stepped up since Xi Jinping took office. Uh, he actually used the word paranoia a, a few times. It's a pretty loaded word, right? I mean, it kind of implies that the fears are, are irrational or that they're baseless. But, I mean, I, I noticed that you, you, you don't mention the things that Beijing points to when it produced like Document 9, right? The Soviet collapse, the color revolutions, and of course, the Arab Spring came a little later, but, um, you know, the, the Arab Spring is, is, is sort of in that Document 9 mentality, right? Uh, didn't all these things have a lot to do with this whole new truculence? Yeah, I mean, that and also um, the, the, the financial collapse in the United States also uh, contributed to the new tr- truculence as well because it emboldened a lot of people in China to say that, look, our system is sure, better, better than their systems. But, but, I, but I also take your point on that front that, that I, I, I probably should have spent more time explaining the, the roots of, of China's concerns uh, about um, this American plot that they believe is, is out there to dismember their country. However baseless it might actually be. Yeah, it might I mean, have... it does look that way through Beijing's windows, right? Yeah, uh, and partially, yeah. But I also really didn't want to validate that too much because it's 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 such an excuse to – from my perspective, it's more – yeah, it's yeah, exactly. And from my perspective, it's sort of more of the same that we've been seeing since, since the 1950s that – the, there's a necessity to gin up the foreign threat in order to justify maintaining very strict control at home. 
And so... Right. Uh, oh, that's precisely what this is. Right. But so whereas, it's just the question of how much ginning up was really required here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I take the point. John, I think uh, we could really go on for days uh, with this podcast and still only cover a fraction of what's in the book. But um, we do have to bear in mind our listeners have a limited lifespan. Um, I'd like to ask a final question, uh, which I think we really have to, is your take on how China policy seems to be shaping up under President-elect Donald Trump during the transition. Do you have a hunch about the direction it's going to take yet, given his appointments and the people who seem to have his ear on China? And what about Beijing's reaction to Trump so far? So obviously the Taiwan phone call was not A, done at the spur of the moment, or B, done only because Bob Dole got some lobbying money from the Taiwanese. This is clearly a uh, 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 an outreach program that was thought up and carried out with with some significant amount of kind of you know planning. Uh, and is this a new sign uh, that the United States is going to significantly change its policy on Taiwan? No. What I think, and actually what I'm worried about on this front, is that it's part of a transactional type of diplomacy that Trump will embrace with China. The implication of that is that if the Chinese begin to say, okay, on North Korea, we're going to be more aggressive in carrying out the sanctions, and we actually might even consider some type of regime change, getting rid of the of, of, of little fatty and replacing him with somebody more um, <laughs> attuned to our interests, then America is going to basically deep six Taiwan. And, and at the end of the day, I worry that any time you elevate Taiwan as an issue between the United States and China, the people who generally tend to suffer are the 23 million people on a very democratic island with a great government. And I, I, that's what I worry about. Um, and, I, and I think... They get thrown under the bus. And I think yeah. that we're, we're moving into this transactional mode where we don't really have any values in how we deal with the you know, greater China, if you will. We simply have interests, and we're willing to deep six our friends or other allies in order to get what we want from, from mainland China. And that's, that's what I worry about. Because if you remember, when Obama first met, first met Trump following Trump's election, the main thing, uh, a problem that they talked about was North Korea. And I think that North Korea really, really worries, and, and, and it should, the new the, the entering administration. And I think the dance with Taiwan was, of course, in part to make that wing of the Republican Party feel good, but it was in part a signal, uh, I think more importantly, a signal to China that, hey, we can play this game too. If you're not going to pay attention to our core interests, then we're not going to pay attention to yours. And what about Beijing's reaction to Trump so far? What have you... What have you... So Beijing... I think Beijing has played this really well. Uh, and you look at Beijing basically has had three reactions to Trump. Trump wins. Beijing basically announces, you know, then the first phone call with, between Xi and Trump, Xi says, don't jump out of the climate change accord, uh, you know, because climate change is real. And then uh, at the APEC meeting, Xi makes an impassioned, for him, an impassioned speech on behalf of globalization saying we are all connected. That sounds very statesmanlike. And then when Trump makes the call, Wang Yi, the foreign minister, there was a 
there was a People's Daily uh, high wide ban. You know, uh, the uh, international edition of the People's Daily criticized Trump specifically, but Wang Yi, as the foreign minister representing the Chinese state, basically said, you know, this is a little trick by Taiwan, and the implication is that the person or, or the, the the entity that's going to suffer is going to be Taiwan, and so they were actually very statesmanlike, and as America uh, uh, kind of flirts. Uh, with childishness, the Chinese can are beginning to look very statesmanlike, and I think that's very much to their benefit. Now, that said, you know, in some room in China, there's somebody saying, "We just gotta give it to them. We gotta slam them." And 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 hopefully, from the Chinese perspective, it would probably be better for them to hold off on their childish impulses as well, too. But if they don't, we could we could have real trouble. No, there's always that guy. There's always that guy. John, what a pleasure it was talking to you and and we look forward to to hearing more uh you know as the Trump administration I still am pained every time those words escape my lips uh as it progresses we'll we'll be calling on you for for your perspective great well thank you so much yeah thank you the book is called The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom America and China 1776 to the Present and it was released just last month it's sure to be assigned widely in undergraduate courses and I hope it finds its way into many stockings for the holidays 6 years sunk into this thing how many jobs did you turn down did you say 3 uh I lost one and I turned down two oh, man. two or three okay yeah. so yeah a lot of opportunity costs that we can make up for by like healthy book sales. So, John, thanks again for taking the time, and I hope you'll stay with us to offer our listeners a recommendation. Excellent. I will. But first, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news. If you like the Cynical Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple App Store or Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps and it means an awful lot to us. So, recommendations. Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? Certainly, and I have two. The one is uh, relevant to this podcast. It's a video by Vice uh, on the ginseng trade out of the Appalachian Mountains, the Carolinas, and I think Tennessee, uh, where there's a problem of people, I don't know if the right word is poaching, but uh, illegally harvesting wild ginseng, a short video, which is uh, you might find interesting uh, if you're interested in John's book. And the second thing I'd like to recommend is a publication of a new translation of the original Brothers Grimm uh, folk and fairy tales. Um, it's a big fat book, and some of it is not really suitable for children. It's kind of the X-rated uh, Brothers Grimm, but it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> wow, cool. I will not be buying that. I don't want to expose my children to any more needless violence than they've already <laughs> get from their video games. John, what about you? What do you have for us? So I have two novels. Um, the first is The Sympathizer by Viet, uh, Viet Tan Nguyen, and the second is The Boat Rocker by Ha Jin, uh, otherwise known as Jin Xuefei. I think both of these books give a great perspective on the hyphenated Asian American experience in the United States, and uh, I was I was really I was in, in deeply engaged in both of them, and I really liked them a lot. Um, the Sympathizer, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize. It tells the story of a Vietnamese 
uh, American agent in the United States working for the North Vietnamese after the war. And the boat rocker tells the story of a crusading Chinese journalist in the United States confronting some of the similar, some similar issues to what his colleagues would confront in China, even though the fellow is, is living in America and has beco- is becoming a naturalized American citizen. Great. Yeah, I'll have to. I mean, I've a lot of people have recommended The Sympathizer to me. I haven't gotten around to, to, to reading it yet, but I, I definitely will. Okay, so my recommendations. So Keith Emerson, the keyboardist of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, died by his own hand earlier this year. And now Greg Lake, who sang and played bass for ELP, and he was also the frontman for King Crimson, uh, has just died as well. Uh, ELP and King Crimson were two of the bands that definitely influenced me most growing up. Uh, so this is kind of a dual eulogy slash recommendation for, for Emerson and for Lake. Uh, incidentally, John Huntsman, uh, when he was U.S. ambassador to China, once told me that Keith Emerson was, and I quote, the individual who has influenced me most in my life, which is just kind of maybe scary. <laughs> anyway, Trump is supposedly considering Huntsman for secretary of state. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, my recommendation can't be the entire oeuvre of ELP, since that would include some of the worst music ever recorded, particularly an album called Love Beach. Do not listen to that. So let me recommend instead the album Tarkus and also the triple live album. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Ladies and gentlemen, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. These are two of the albums that got me into progressive rock uh, back when I was, you know, a a wee lad. I was like 12 or 13. Uh, Just great stuff. Amazing stuff. Full of, yeah, ridiculous overplaying and bombast, but it's it's, it's still totally amazing. So, John, thanks once again for taking the time. That was just what a pleasure. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed this long chat. Thank you so much for having me, both of you. Thanks, really appreciate John. it. Jeremy, uh, I'll see you soon, Jeremy, right? I'll Indeed. see you on Sunday, yeah. Arizona, okay. here we come. Here we come. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng and Soraya Durabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.